Oh my god, what am I doing? Hi everybody, welcome to Just Thinking Out Loud. My name is Desiree. I am interviewing a guest today who is going to be telling us about her experience with censorship, depending on what you might take away after hearing her recount what happened. Her name is Abby Nissenbaum, and she was doing a graduate research PhD program at Clark University in Massachusetts. Uh, she ended up leaving the program on unfavorable terms with her advisor. She's going to describe what happened. And she is concerned and was concerned about research practices that weren't ethical and a specific term called p-hacking. She's interesting to have on this show because she was studying what she called something that was hyper-social justice So not what you would used to be hearing about in terms of censorship, but she definitely has a story to tell. I'm very excited to have her on the show because I think that what's happening in academic institutions is not great at all. And I'm wondering if this is a pattern and not just her story. So hi, Abby. Thank you so much for reaching back out to me yeah. um, to do interviews because you're also undergoing a law case at the moment. Could you Tell us who you are, uh, introduce yourself in your own words, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so thank you so much for having me, Desiree. That's how you pronounce your name, correct? It's just, it's Desiree. Yes. <laughs> yes. I didn't know if the hyphen should be more, I don't know, punctuated. Um, no, it's <laughs> But yeah, I'm a former PhD student in social psychology um, at Clark University, and now I'm actually an MBA candidate at the University of Memphis in, in Memphis, Tennessee. So could you let us know, first of all, what is your background academically? Why did you decide to go to Clark University and what were you studying? Yeah, so actually my college journey started with me um, wanting to get a BFA in either musical theater or vocal performance. So I was sort of deciding between those two tracks. So it would be like more musical theater or more opera based. Um, and as part of our just regular college courses, we had to take psychology classes, or not psychology classes, but just like general education courses. Um, so I ended up in a social psychology course um, and I was so enamored by the topics that we were hearing about just in these introductory sort of lessons. So I really remember learning about like um, Henry Tajfel's um, social identity theory and being really interested in that and thinking that that could be a way to help people. Um, I've always been interested in social justice and preventing violence um, and those sorts of things. So I actually switched into um, research and I started getting into research right away as an undergrad. Um, so I worked in Dr. Terry Besho's lab all throughout my college experience. I was her lab manager. Um, and I loved it so much that I ended up going into a PhD in social psychology. Um, I had known my former advisor through um, a family friend who is also my mentor, um, Dr. Felicia Prado, and I had worked with her over a summer, um, you know, just doing like basic research assistant tasks, you know, helping her collect data or doing rudimentary analyses. Um, so Andrew, or Dr. Stewart, was Felicia uh, Dr. Prado's former doctoral student. Um, and so she said, hey, my former doctoral student's taking students. You know, he's a brand new professor at this university. It's small. You'll get a lot of attention from these faculty members. Um, so I just decided to, to go for it, and I got in. <laughs> 
Okay. <clears throat> what exactly were you studying? So I read a bit um, something about, there's a term you use that I, I want you to define actually, because I have no idea what it means. Okay. Okay. It was heterodox something. Yeah. I think you might be talking about heterosexism or heterosexist harassment. Oh. Yes. Yeah, that's what it is. So if you could just go into detail about what exactly you were studying um, and then the actual research process and what happened. Yeah, so that was actually a project that I um, had not designed or conducted myself. So my advisor was running this study looking at heterosexist harassment in the workplace. And this was prior to me um, coming into the doctoral program. So he was looking at basically... um, if people deviate from the so-called norm of heterosexual behavior, are people going to harass them at work based on the fact that they identify maybe as bisexual or homosexual? So are they going to say things like, you know, you like weird um, insert slur here? <laughs> There's a whole scale basically of these sort of heterosexist or people might call it homophobic or biphobic microaggressions um, that someone might say to you at work um, or in the context of a workplace that might make someone who is not heterosexual feel uncomfortable. Um, So that's what we mean. It's basically, it's like a fancy way of saying like homophobic harassment. Okay, that makes (laughs) sense. Um, And then so talk about the, what happened when you were doing the research um, in terms of the it was a rating scale on an interview i think and you asked i you asked respondents to self-identify um based on a number category um a scale i I think it was from one to four or something like that and assigned an identity based on that so they self-identified i'm gonna let you explain but just saying what i what i got from it and then what happened as you were analyzing uh, the data Yeah, so we, well, my advisor, when he ran the study prior to me being a doctoral student there, um, asked respondents to identify on a scale of one to five. So I believe that one was completely heterosexual or completely homosexual, and then five was the reverse, so completely uh, heterosexual or completely homosexual. And then twos and fours were mostly heterosexual or homosexual, depending, I forget which end of the scale was heterosexual versus homosexual. Um, And then the middle, so people who said that they were threes were bisexual. Um, I don't know quite where that rating scale was derived from. I know that the Kinsey scale goes from like um, zero to six, I believe. And then it has the asexual or no sociosexual relations area on the end. Um, But for this analysis, I think my advisor was looking to separate people who were straight versus gay or lesbian versus bisexual. Um, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically we had five, um, five rating scales and then he wanted me to take people who had identified as twos and fours and basically drop them into threes or ones or fives and run the analysis multiple times until we got the, the preferred finding that, you know, corresponded with his preferred hypothesis. And I didn't realize at the time that you can't just run multiple analyses with different configurations of the same data, um, you know, until basically you get what you're looking for, because that's something called p-hacking. I don't know if you want me to go more into that. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, sure. I, I, I would like you to, to go into it. I think you're doing a great job of explaining it. Um, go ahead if you want to say more on, on that. Yeah, so p-hacking is basically when you run a bunch of different analyses or even the same analysis um, multiple times on that same data, just using little tweaks here and there until you find support for your desired hypothesis. And then you only selectively report that finding that you that you found that um, that goes with whatever you were hypothesizing in the first place. So it looks like you found it on the first try, but you actually took a bunch of different tries and a bunch of different steps to get there and tweaked it in ways that might not have been in line with your original method. Okay, and um, from the documentation that you wrote, the bit of it or the part of it that I read, it seemed that the issue was not just running uh, multiple analyses until you got the hypothesis you were looking for and possibly particularly statistical significance that you might be looking for, but that you don't document that. So you don't even say that what you did, you did something first and then you did something next to get what you wanted. You you hide and obscure what happened beforehand. Am I understanding yeah. correctly based on what I read? Absolutely. Yeah, that's really the crux of the issue because I think that if we had just reported that we had done the analyses and maybe categorized the, the people who had listed themselves as mostly heterosexual or mostly homosexual in different ways, I think that would have been totally fine. And that would have been transparent and perfectly acceptable way to, you know, to fix an issue that maybe didn't have to be such an issue in the first place. So what happened? Um, well, actually, first of all, we need to clarify something because you keep making it clear that you were working on your advisor's project as an assistant before you actually started your own PhD. I wasn't quite understanding what you were trying to clarify. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, so my advisor ran, so he like designed and ran this study prior to me even being accepted to the school. So he had this study sort of like just, you know, buried in a file drawer somewhere. And then he pulled it out when I came on as a student and he's like, hey, you're a gay student. You should work on this gay project. I mean, not quite like that, but <laughs> right. I mean, it was within my line of interest, so it wasn't quite like that. I don't want to, you know, no, demean well, him was, for that. <laughs> um, no, it was funny and it makes sense. So, okay. So I'm just trying to make sure I, I don't say the wrong thing. That's why I keep, you know, saying what I think I understand and asking you to make sure that I'm understanding it correctly. So what happened was you brought up certain issues with the university um, but you had uh, feedback from them that was negative. You didn't get support from the administration. And they also weren't following their own protocols um, in terms of allowing you time to find a new advisor. And then that eventually led to you not even being able to complete your uh, PhD at the university, even though you were trying to do that. So could you just correct me if I said something wrong and elaborate on that. Yeah, so I think maybe going back to when I first realized that this wasn't an appropriate way to do the analysis. So I went to a conference called um, SIPS or the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science in between my first and second years of my PhD. Um, and there is where I learned about p-hacking. So I was like, great, you know, that's something that I think that we did in this study that I've now presented at not just one big conference, but also at Clark University's um, Graduate Research Festival it was my first year project that I had to present. Um, 
So I made a mental note to just talk to my advisor about it when I got back in the fall. Um, and when I brought it to my advisor and, and showed him actually Clark University's own research misconduct policies, which lists selective reporting as a form of data falsification that's prohibited for students to engage in, um, he told me that I was intellectually underdeveloped and that I just didn't understand the difference between p-hacking and normal <laughs> normal data <laughs> analysis techniques. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. I thought you were... No, you're, you're totally fine. Finished. Go ahead. I was going to say, I I, I saw in your document that you had said that, or written that he had said that it was data exploration, that that that, that was the, the explore word was the word that seems to be used. I'm saying this, Abby is not saying this, because I know you have to, you might have to be precise with like what you're saying out there, but that is what I got from reading um, the document. So he saw it as just a, um, I think it's a he, um, regular part of analyzing data, um, Whereas I, I don't think it is uh, based on, you know, the selective reporting and the university based on its own documentation doesn't say it is. Right. So data exploration has to be tagged as data exploration. So you have to say this isn't what we hypothesized to begin with. But, you know, we found this, this and this. And then we did this and maybe it was a little bit closer to our original hypothesis. Um, but it has to be explicitly tagged as that. It's not a confirmatory finding as we were presenting it basically. Um, and his explanation actually changed over time. So in, um, in one document, he wrote that it was data exploration. And then in another document, I think actually he told Inside Higher Ed um, that at a faculty meeting, um, other faculty had told him to check for robustness of data, but you don't conduct robustness texts or tests on um, demographic data. Like you can't, there's no way to know whether or not your participants like meant something else by their demographic, um, you know, whatever they put as their identity there. Right. And um, just to go back to what we said earlier uh, before we move on, it if a participant identifies himself as a certain thing, then you can't then change the way you look at the data um, when the whole point of it was how they put themselves um, in the, the, I guess, the boxes or where they align themselves along that scale from being homosexual or, uh, I can't say the other term, heterosex, I'm just not used to it, um, or not, whichever, whichever way that was. So, and also if you don't um, specify what you did, in terms of analyzing the data. So I just want to say that, that that is the issue. And I think this is a very, very big deal. And I know you can't speculate. Um, I mean, you can, but you might not want to say that you are why your advisor might have been doing that. But I do think that people are very passionate about these subjects, I think rightly so. But that shouldn't overshadow the curiosity that is needed um, when you're researching certain subjects. So. You might want to go, this is just me giving my opinion, into a certain research area because you care about it, because it has impacted you personally, because you want to help people, as you said. But that can't, you can't like have your conclusion before. Like that's, that's the whole purpose of science is that you have a hypothesis that yeah. you think, you know, might, you might see something, um, but you have to remain curious. You can't be trying to adjust the data to fit 
to fit what you want. And um, I'm wondering if this is a pattern that is common in the social sciences. Um, if you've seen that, if you know of any other cases, do you think that this is a, a general thing? Um, you can say whatever you, is your actual answer. Yeah, so actually there's a term for what you just described and it's colloquially referred to as harking, so hypothesizing after results are known. Um, I think that has been a problem. I mean, I can't like point to any one study and say, hey, they did this. Um, but just the existent replication crisis, I think, is evidence in and of itself that clearly people have been um, maybe not outright falsifying data, of course not, um, but people have been sort of engaging in these things that are on in the gray area of ethical versus not ethical. Um, and the other issue I wanted to bring up is that when you're talking about like really sensitive personal identity characteristics, such as like being LGBTQ, um, it's not really providing participants with autonomy that they deserve to then go in and recategorize just to fit your own, you know, personal hypothesis of what you think will help them later on. Because um, that wasn't really, even for me as a lesbian woman, that's not for me to tell someone else what they identify as. I, yeah, I completely agree with, with what you just said. Uh, because I mean, that's a, a big issue with uh, social justice in general. I think that there are actual issues, but then people's desire to help in the way they want or to see the outcome they want takes precedence over what's actually happening. And it becomes more about what the person who is trying to help desires versus what the people they might be trying to help actually see. So I, I think that happens um, very often. Um, so <laughs> you, <laughs> you mentioned the uh, replication crisis, and that's something that I, I wanted to bring up. If you don't mind, um, just in case the audience doesn't know, Absolutely. they most likely do. Could you, you know, go into detail about what what that is? Um, yeah. So the replication crisis. Um, I mean, I think it's hit all areas of psychology, not just social psychology, but basically, um, there are labs, you know, looking at these really old foundational studies, um, such as like. Well, actually, I don't even know if I should say. Um, what some of the big studies are that don't replicate. But um, there are these big like foundational studies in social psychology that everyone learns about in their intro classes. And we're figuring out that they were maybe context dependent um, or you know, maybe there was some tinkering going on with data. I, I don't, don't know exactly what's going on. Um, but that basically makes them not as robust as we think that they are. So basically, people are not able to replicate those findings when they're doing them in their own labs. Um, and there are a lot of different reasons why that might be. I don't want to have to, you know, I don't want to go into like a whole primer of it. But <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, if you do know the examples of studies, I think detail is great. If you, I think it's okay if you make a mistake, if, you, if that's what you're worried about, like yeah. you're on the spot. <laughs> But um, if you know for sure, you could say if, if you know, maybe you don't. Yeah, I know that ego depletion has not been able to replicate in some cases. Um, terror management theory, I think, has not been able to replicate in some cases. Um, I'm not quite sure of the other big ones that haven't been able to. But like there are these big findings basically in pop culture um, that we're finding like weren't 
weren't actually as I seem. <laughs> Do you think, so I was looking into this case and thinking to myself that replication is exactly what might solve any of these issues because we as human beings are fallible. We have biases. We want things to go our own way. We are controlling, etc. So even if your someone like your advisor might do something like what he's doing in terms of um, falsifying data and not explicitly stating exactly what was done in his research process, that's okay if people actually replicate their studies and try to look for patterns on a, on a larger scale than just a simple study or one or two studies even making some statement about some social or non-social phenomenon. So replication to me um, seems like the way in which you deal with humans um, being biased in their research. And do you agree that that would solve this case? Yeah, scientists are human and we're coming into, like, we're not science robots. We have all sorts of biases and, you know, other things like you said that even color the way that we ask questions or the questions that we ask to begin with. Um, the issue is that academia as it's structured right now does not really favor replication. So they want novel studies. Um, you know, you're not going to get a tenure track position if you were just replicating other people's studies throughout your entire graduate career and publishing replications. So they want basically constant churning out of new information. So that's, again, an issue because we're incentivized basically to find support for our, our hypotheses so we can publish more. Yeah, that was also something I saw in uh, what you had written was something about you being told that you hadn't done enough work because you hadn't issued the first publication yet. Oh, and then also you, you couldn't necessarily publish something if you didn't find something that was statistically significant. And I think that those incentives aren't really conducive to good science because um, no, you're not. not going, yeah, I guess that's just a comment that I want to make. You're not going based off of just doing the research. Um, I mean, I understand you live in the real world <laughs> and like you want to have metrics to measure so that people can decide whether or not you might get funding, et cetera. But that has to be balanced with like what you are incentivizing um, in terms of ethical, ethical behavior. Because if you're just trying to churn out publications, yeah. then that's not science. No, it's not. It's just basically how fast can I, <laughs> you know, get some things on the pipeline. Um, but I, I'm not sure if I quite like ended the story of what actually happened to me as a PhD student and like why I can't, you know, so a lot of people are asking me, well, why don't you just write a rebuttal? You know, like, why don't you just publish it and write a rebuttal to the finding? And it's because the day after I earned my and your master's degree, so basically you can earn your master's degree um, prior to getting your PhD. So the day after I, I earned that, um, my advisor sent me just a one-line email saying, you're done with the program. I don't want you anymore. You're out, um, which wasn't allowed by the school, um, at least in the written policies. So that's why I can't write a rebuttal. And that's why I can't even publish this because we're like, 
how do I have the, the advisorship to publish a paper? Or how do I have the time or the funding now? I'm sorry to hear that. I was going to ask this at the end, but how, how does the world like possibly help you to get that done? If you want to do that, maybe you don't, which I think is fine. But if you want to make a rebuttal or do some science, um, do the research that you might have actually wanted to do in that vein. I know you're on the MBA track now, but just in case. Yeah, so right now I've, I've had to totally switch careers. Basically, my reputation has just been <laughs> dragged through the mud in social psychology, and I don't think anyone there wants anything to do with me. Um, but I had a four-study um, four package for my thesis studies. Um, so it would have been nice to publish that because I did write it up, and I thought it was good work. It was pre-registered, and I was really proud of it. Um, but for this particular study, I don't think that I technically have ownership of this data anymore because my advisor was the one who funded it with his startup funds and, and designed it, of course. Um, so I don't know if it'll go anywhere now. Um, right now, it just exists. Like the findings actually exist online as a poster on um, the social and personality um, psychology. What are they called? SPSP. Um, it's basically the, the Social Psychology Professional Society. Um, it exists on their uh, OSF Open Science Framework repository. So you can go and see the results. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It's the your advisor's um, research data, and all you can really do is comment on it. I think the ideal path forward for a university when they heard something like a complaint that you, may, you have brought up, you brought up, is to adjust. So just see, I mean, they could see the data. I'm sure they could like look into the raw data and just do better. Like if, I mean, it doesn't sound like he called you a liar. Like I haven't seen that in any of the things you said. So it just seems, it just seems like you should, um, sorry, the university should just make sure that the, the job was done properly. I'm actually thinking in my head, like, why did it have to turn into like a whole thing? Like, right. why didn't they just, like, you know, <laughs> just do it properly if <laughs> someone, like, brought up a complaint? And I do think it's telling that he, um, your advisor didn't call you a liar. <laughs> he just, like, said he, it was, it was, like, well, it seems rude to me to be, like, questioning your intellectual, <laughs> your intellectual <laughs> capacity. And yeah. it also is nonsensical because he also accepted working with you. So he's also, like questioning his own intellectual capacity in the first place that's just, true just saying <laughs> just saying um for having that's chosen true. to work with you uh, in the first place anyway i am sorry that what happened to you happened i do think that this is much more than what's happening um with you and uh, i hope that if this kind of thing is happening in academia and um science i'm I'm not sure that academia should be the the host, the sole host of science. I mean, it isn't, but you know, then people don't like private research because that has its own interest, which is true. Yeah. But academia also has its own interest, so totally. Um, it's just good to shine a light, which is I, I think what you are doing because that's the only way that it could possibly um, get better. Yeah, I actually had recommendations at the end of my document. And of course, now I'm like forgetting what my fourth recommendation was, <laughs> like as, you know, as not to repeat this in other programs. Um, and I would Do you want to go into them. Yeah, I mean, I would 
probably be a bad YouTuber because I can't even remember my own recommendations and like these own points that I've been trying to make. Um, but my points were like, settle disagreements with your advisees kindly and sort of just try to talk it out and figure out, you know, if someone's bringing up that they're uncomfortable with what's happening um, in research for any reason, like maybe they have a totally different sort of ethical complaint, or maybe they just, you know, are, you know, self-conscious about that particular research for whatever reason. Um, just talk it out with your advisee, you know, don't say I'm the leader here. And you know, what I say goes just figure out methodological disagreements respectfully. Um, my other big sticking point was to recognize that your research will not always support the cause that you're trying to prop up. It just won't. <laughs> the world doesn't work like that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a good point. Or those are good points to make. You might make a good YouTuber because it just takes practice. And you also remind yourself of what you're going to talk about before you talk about it. <laughs> so it's a that preparation. That is very good. <laughs> good advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so here's one question that I have for you. Since undergoing this experience... Has your view of uh, social justice, um, academia, and uh, I guess the world in general shifted? Um, my core values and my political views haven't at all. I mean, I always have like some comment in my Twitter notifications calling me like a damn social justice warrior. And in many ways, I still am. I deeply, deeply care about social justice issues and I deeply care about violence prevention, um, and that's all I ever wanted to do with my PhD was um, specifically preventing um, violence on the basis of gender and sexual orientation, and that's still something that I care so much about. Um, it has changed my view of academia a little bit because in many ways I thought as a student that professors and administrators would be protective of me and think of me as sort of part of their little, you know, academic family. Um, and in many ways, that's what we were at Clark. But the second that I said something that they didn't like or didn't agree with, I became the enemy. And they said really hurtful things to me in addition to, you know, ripping my career and my stipend and my life away. Um, and I don't know, it just, I feel sort of disenchanted now with, um, academia and yeah it's unfortunate yeah um I remembered what I was gonna say so the purpose of um codes of conduct is to figure out what to do when there is some kind of um, disagreement so I had sure a biology uh teacher um when I was in Jamaica at my high school um but high school well yeah at my high school and I remember her saying that even if you don't like someone personally, that doesn't mean that she was specifically talking about how, um, promoting someone um, in a job. Like if you don't like their personality, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't promote them. So what you choose um, is like actual codes of conduct. And like if they're 
following objective standards it's not whether or not you like a person like specifically and something that I, I see a lot in the modern world is expecting you expecting your colleagues um, and not like your family or something which makes way more sense to have like that kind of oh, idea yeah. to be like you to like have like exactly your values and like it just doesn't make any sense to me like that that doesn't like there are different kinds of people in the world. We're all unique. We have like like different backgrounds. Like there's a lot going on before you meet someone. They're not just mm-hmm. going to be like you. So uh, I'm sorry that happened to you. And like it seems as if like contractually they might have done something wrong. And I'm I'm going to ask you about that in a in a section. But it looks like you have something to say in response to what I I just said. <laughs> No, I completely agree with you. Um, I think it always has to come back to what your code of conduct standards are. So like, if someone's just being a little bit rude, you know, like how academics are, they can be a little, I don't know, they can be the academics, (laughs) we'll say that. Um, But if someone's objectively following these codes of conduct or these standards that you've put into writing, then they should be totally fine. And they should be allowed to proceed in their position. Yeah. Okay. And so the next question that I had for you, I don't know how much you can talk about, but I guess you let me know in a second is, uh, um, what's going on there contractually? Cause I know you have a lawsuit and like what exactly, it seems to me as if they dismissed you, even though they shouldn't have. And, um, there were some things in your documentation about the timeline and they didn't give you enough time. Um, and maybe they like didn't, uh, they stopped you from applying for a third advisor, even though that's not something that's like some kind of standard and just talk about the legal um, issues that you can't talk about. Yeah, I'm not a legal scholar and there is not a lawsuit going on. There were some negotiations uh, with the school, but um, obviously I, I don't think I can talk about those. Um, so from a contractual standpoint, there is no system in their student handbook, which is a legally binding contract um, with the university. So there's no guideline for an advisor to just say, I don't like you, you're out of the program. Um, The only way that someone can be kicked out of the PhD program in psychology is if they receive two years worth of unsatisfactory progress reviews, and I hadn't received that. Um, There was no academic basis for my dismissal. I was in perfectly fine academic standing, um, had the equivalent of a 4.0 GPA and was making, you know, really good headway on all my research. So there was nothing there. Um, So the other way that someone can be taken out of a lab is if a student says to an advisor um, and puts it in writing, I think, that they do not want to be advised by them anymore and they want to switch into another lab. So at that point, they have 30 days to switch into another lab. Um, But the contract says that only a student can initiate that. An advisor can't do that. So the 30-day clause that they enacted in my case um, was not even applicable to my case anyway because my advisor just sent me that that email saying, you're out. You have 30 days to find a new advisor. So I did get more than 30 days, even though it shouldn't have been enacted in the first place, um, just because of end of the semester timing. So a faculty meeting, I think, ended like or was set to to commence a week after that 30 days would have been. And that's when when they would have decided anyway. So they just said, take, you know, the seven extra days. 
Um, so what Inside Higher Ed did not report is that I did find two potential new advisors. One was the department chair of the social psychology department who led me on to believe that she would be taking me. And another was my best friend in the program who would be graduating with his PhD in August of that year and had already been hired back by the school as a faculty member. And he said, you know, of course, I'll take you. Like that, that wasn't even a question. Um, so by the time the faculty meeting came around, I think that was like May 22nd of 2019, um, the social psychology chair who had said she would take me on decided for whatever reason that she wouldn't take me on. And the reason that she gave is that like the research proposal I sent her wasn't long enough, but there was no way, no one had ever given me guidelines about that. Um, and she hadn't ever brought that up with me prior to this. <laughs> so. Right. Well, <laughs> as, as I just said that I think people should learn to work with, work with others. I do think that it's their right to not do it if they don't want. I mean, I think, it's like morally ambiguous and a little bit slimy, which I think we can all feel, but they can do that, in my opinion, if, if they want to. I don't think it's good for um, research. Like if you're thinking intellectually, I, I, uh, I think that it's good to have different um, opinions intellectually to produce um, research of value and what's interesting is that you're no longer going to be studying these things like you've moved on to a different field and so in this say if this advisor goes on to publish um his paper uh i mean you can write a letter to the editor but it also sends a signal to other students who might want to be studying uh what the topics that you guys are studying quantitatively because it, I saw something about you also wanted to focus more quantitatively on things versus qualitatively to not be in that field. And I think that changes the outcomes of um, the science uh, that might come out of that. Yeah, I think, well, really quickly, I wanted to clarify that I also did have that secondary advisor. I had my friend um, who would have taken me on and they just like, they basically said, no, he doesn't start until August, which is in a few months from now. So but we don't, we didn't have school during the summer, so it didn't make sense anyway. Um, <laughs> but that aside, yeah, I think it really changes, like, especially as this gets more publicized, someone might watch this and say, you know, I don't really want to go into social psychology now if this is the type of stuff that they can pull. And that fundamentally changes the types of questions that are being asked. Um, that's why I think a lot of people are proponents of diversity in science and, you know, getting all different types of viewpoints um, is because the, the more people of different types of life experiences you bring into the field, the more diversity in questions there are that are being asked and the more perspectives there are that are actually doing the asking. Right. Um, and this is my bias speaking. Well, it's funny because you say diversity and you say it in, the, I think, the true meaning of the word. But the way a lot of people use that word these days, it's, 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 not, it's not like that. Um, so that's, that's just my comment. Um, I think that's all the questions that I've had for you. Um, I just want to give you the option if um, you want the listeners or the audience to support you in any way. I think the answer is no, but this is your opportunity if you want them to follow you somewhere or contribute to anything or even just general advice based off of your story. 
Um, do you want to say anything else? Yeah, I think my my only big takeaway is just to be kind to your advisees. And if you see an, a student um, or, you know, a faculty member or a postdoc with less power um, being mistreated, just step in and say, hey, that's not appropriate. You know, it wasn't appropriate to call me intellectually underdeveloped. It wasn't appropriate or contractually in line to kick me out of the program. All it would have taken is one person standing up and saying, it's not right. Um and so far, no one has. Still waiting. Um, but yeah, you can follow me on social media if you want. You don't have to. <laughs> um, I, Instagram is just my name, Abby Nissenbaum. My Twitter is just my name, Abby Nissenbaum. Um, and you can support me by supporting The Flame the Musical. Um, it's a new LGBTQ musical that I'm assistant producing. It has incredible actors and um, songwriters and other producers and directors. Um, so I'll put information on that on my Twitter <laughs> and Instagram. Okay. Well, uh, I wish you all the best, Abby. I'm glad that you are sharing um, your story. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for coming on the show and for getting back to me. I want to remind my audience, if you like hearing these kinds of conversations, don't forget that you can support Just Thinking Out Loud at justthinkingoutloud.tv slash support. Have a great day, and I hope that you enjoyed this very interesting uh, conversation. Thank you. Bye.